0: You're listening to the Boss Business of Surgery Series, episode 99. This is the replay on the Thriving Despite Having Complications webinar, which summarizes what I talked about in our three-month group coaching of It's Complicated. And speaking of group coaching, Stop Hating Clinic starts October 4th. There's so much to clinic that we were not taught how to write notes on time, how to delegate, how to get in and out of rooms more efficiently, how to get paid for what we do, This is a critically important topic, so head to bosssurgery.com and find out more. Welcome surgeons. Residency didn't teach us everything we needed to learn to be a successful surgeon. While we spent our time caring for patients and learning how to operate, we didn't learn how to advocate for ourselves or navigate our career. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Vertries. I'm a general surgeon, certified coach, and founder of the Boss Business of Surgery series. This is where you'll learn those lessons not taught in Residency. Okay, welcome all. Thank you for joining us for Thriving Despite Having Complications. Uh, I'm Amy Vertries. This is such a challenging topic because it brings up so many feelings in us that we've never been trained to deal with. I applaud every one of you on here who has decided to deal with these negative emotions so it doesn't take a hold of you. Suffering truly is optional. Who am I? I am a general surgeon. And in 2020, I found myself in the great pause with all of you. I made some big changes in my life. Specifically, I left employed practice to start a private practice and became a certified coach. Since then, I've been on my own personal mission to help other doctors battle lessons not taught in residency. I've been doing this with one-on-one and group coaching, a podcast, and recently a book. My goal for you is to have a love of this amazing, privileged job we've all worked so hard to achieve. But- more so to love yourself in this job. I'm going to reference a lot of books. And today I uploaded a lot of books I recommend with their Amazon links on the BossSurgery.com site in the become the boss MD Facebook group. That's so you guys can find it pretty easily. All right, let's talk about two thoughts. We have all heard the only surgeon who doesn't have complications is the one who doesn't operate. And Every surgeon carries within him a small cemetery from which from time to time he goes to pray, a place of bitterness and regret where he must look for an explanation for his failures. That's Rene LaRèche, uh, 1951. These sentiments are so important because they communicate the two truths of complications. They happen to all of us and we are not alone. It feels like failure and it doesn't easily go away. It shows us our feelings are real and valid and shared by the common humanity of being a surgeon. If you're here, you need more than that. You've all heard these phrases and there's something more. So why is it important to think about the effect complications have on us? Because we still have the most important job in the world. We've done the work to become the most knowledgeable and the most skilled person in the room. Taking people in their most vulnerable time who don't know what's going on, who face life-altering things worse than they ever imagined, who face the unknown, and we are there through their, as their guide through this. They need us, but we need us too. We are declaring that our feelings matter too. We need time to focus on us too. We are the second victim in these inevitable events of complications. So before we get started, I wanna talk about something, and it's important as we start navigating the subject or any challenging subject. I want you to embrace your role of a passive observer of your experience. Visualize yourself with planes of glass around who you are right now this very second. Nothing in the past, the future, or the current surroundings are gonna affect you. You're safe, you're protected. Imagine the story of Scrooge and the Christmas Carol. I'm guiding you through and no one else can see you. When we put ourselves in that role of the passive observer, we have access to all areas of our mind the vulnerable parts that we're afraid this knowledge will do to us, but you're ready. We're gonna shine a light on the places we don't want to look, but negative feelings magnify in the dark and we're ready to feel free. Take a deep breath, relax. I'm gonna take you on a journey of self-discovery. And this journey is our hero's journey. It's like a character in your favorite book. We have our ups and downs, our twists and turns, but you're the hero. When we're reading this book we can see what's going on but deep down we know this character we know the tough times come but they're going to come out on top because of who they are that's who we are and i want you to think about that for yourself okay what is a complication perfectionist thinking prolonged stress cycle self-compassion managing negative emotions shame resilience confidence and self-confidence assessing for yourself and moving forward Not small topics, have you noticed? When you look at the definition of a complication from Google, it's a noun, a circumstance that complicates something or a difficulty. They also added that it's a secondary disease or condition aggravating an already existing one. And I heard these talked about before with trauma victims. If you've heard the phrase, well, I didn't shoot him. Well, I didn't wedge that gallstone in the gallbladder. It's important to realize that people come to us already with a problem. They came to us with a problem that already has its own set of possibilities and complications. We as surgeons want to take ownership, but there's always an aspect of a patient's situation that we don't need to take ownership of, that they have already have an ongoing problem. Our strength of complete ownership is admirable, but not always accurate. Another way to look at this complication as a doctor is any event that is not planned. We plan to do something for a patient and it didn't go that way. They may have been harmed in some way or maybe not. The point is we didn't plan for it to happen. So when a complication occurs, it may feel like a failure because it is. Unless you planned on that variation happening, that's a failure by definition. Failure is having an outcome in mind and it doesn't happen when we did not achieve that stated outcome for any number of reasons. And that ironically is a neutral thought. Not achieving an outcome is a neutral thought. It feels far from neutral though. (laughs) So I did not achieve my stated outcome of completing a case that I wanted. It doesn't feel neutral. So this has to do with our reactions to a failure. So let's think about this for a minute. How do you respond to failure? What does that bring up in you right now? We think facts cause our feelings. We think the complication is causing our feelings. A complication is just a fact. The ureter is transected and I didn't mean to. The patient codes, the anastomosis leaks. These are facts. Not everyone would feel the same way that we do. What is that thought that leads to that feeling that you're having? This is how we are managing the complication, and that's why it's so important to understand where we are coming from. There may be more useful thoughts to consider. So what are some ways to think about failures that might be helpful? Failures can be opportunity to challenge how you think and find ways to improve. Because when we realize something didn't work out the way we want, we have to then go back and figure out the thought process. We have to figure out, why didn't these things work? and how to make things better. And we may realize all the things contributing to complications that are out of our control. So again, we may not know exactly what's bothering us about a complication. And right now, we just know we feel bad. So it's going to be different for everyone. We all have different thoughts about what's going on with a complication. But there are common themes. And the most common theme that I see is that it feels like failure. So this is the summary of the, the last three months that we had, and it's complicated. I wanted to gather all of my thoughts on the topic and not, not let it pass without really thinking of these concepts. I want these to be available for you all till we do this course again next year. So in the group, uh, we worked with a discovery sheet to identify the different aspects of the event and assess it in more detail. What this does is to help give you feedback on what you're thinking, what you're feeling, what you're doing, and the other aspects of the event that you may not have considered. The solution to how we feel in a complication is found in clarity about what the problem actually is, and the problem specifically with us, because it's going to be different for everyone. And until we spend some time in these different areas, we're not going to have that clarity. I've broken the event into before, during, and after the complication. That helps us find where our train derails. Are there problems with the plan, problems with execution, patient circumstance, system circumstance, or things that we can't figure out? Do we need more information? We may never find out for sure, but the only guarantee to not discovering this is to not look. And when we feel terrible, we don't want to look. So then we don't offer ourselves the solutions. But when you're ready to look, you're ready for the solutions. So before the complication, we may have several self-sabotaging thoughts. What did you think of yourself before the complication? What are your thoughts and feelings about yourself as a surgeon, yourself as a person? It can be thoughts like, I have to do this case. I'm scared of this case. I don't want to do this case. I've been dreading this case. There's something wrong with me. I, didn't, I couldn't do this before. It took too long before. I'm a slow surgeon. Or were you thinking nothing at all? Was it this case you've done so much you weren't even conscious about what you were thinking? These thoughts help you see how you were showing up to the case. During the complication, overwhelm and uncertainty can take over. We may lose sight of the facts. After the complication, shame and fear magnify if we're not careful. I want you to start questioning everything because how you approach complications is likely how you approach everything in life. And I know that complications can be a big trigger for folks. But understanding how we react to these complications points to how we feel about ourselves and gives us insight into our interactions with the people around us. You're going to learn how to approach lots of things in life. So that's why it's important. Okay, let's talk about who we are before the complication. I want to talk about medicine today, our training in the prolonged stress cycle. There is plenty wrong with medicine these days. <laughs> The level of disrespect, suspicion, and the public since the pandemic, the continued decrease in reimbursement, corporatization of medicine, replacement of docs with mid-levels, litigation stress, those events are causing a baseline stress in us. But these events are not about us. They feel more like things happening to us. Complications, though, feel very personal. They happen with our hands and our minds. We are at fault. We have done the thing. But these additional stressors do contribute to our underlying stress. It's an addition to what we've already dealt with. So let's first start from the beginning. And maybe not the beginning. That's our raising. But that's a big topic. Let's just start with our training. There is a good book called What Happened to You by Bruce Perry and Oprah Winfrey. This is one of the books that I link in bosssurgery.com under books. Instead of saying what's wrong with you, we ask ourselves, what happened to you? And for us, what happened in our training? What happened in our experience? What happened even going back to our childhood before we got to our training? How we interacted with our teachers and our parents and what we thought of achievement and failure. <clears throat> I wanna talk about the training and then think about just sharing your experience. I want you to remember how complications were treated, what your m M&M and conference looked like, things that we took just as a fax and that, that's how everybody did it. But that's really not if you start talking to people. The more you're stressed, the more your primitive brain basically gets bigger. So to have any information come to our smart part of our brain, it has to filter to that primitive brain. And if we've hyped that up with a trauma response from our upbringing or our training, it takes a lot longer to get to the smart part of our brain. So you lose access to your prefrontal cortex. So essentially trauma makes it more difficult for you to access that smart part. So let's think about our training. How was criticism managed? In my training, we would have to go up to the podium and morning report and talk about our cases. And it felt like we were getting pummeled. There was a table over to the side, our program director was there, all the attendings and the chiefs were in the back. And our program director's office was right there. And he would have music beforehand. I think it was Fleetwood Mac. And one of our urologists that was a couple years ahead of me says he still can't listen to Fleetwood Mac to this day. He says he listens to it and he gets triggered. But we don't register the trauma of these things when it's little events over time, a morning report here, another there. But these are like traumas. It's like the frog and the boiling water. As the temperature of the water turns up over time, before you know it, you're boiling. A common thought in training is to hold ourselves responsible for what we do. That sounds good, doesn't it? Sounds reasonable. But what happens when it's over the top? What is the difference between feeling responsible and self-blame? In both cases, there's an event. We take responsibility. Being responsible for an event will lead us to read, ask around, take steps to improve. And I believe we were all trained for that, to be responsible for what we did. But when that responsibility turns to self-blame, now it's not our actions that cause the problem. It's who we are as people. Self-blame may have us do the same actions. We read, we ask around, we take steps to improve. But the harm that we cause ourselves by creating self-doubt because we are to blame, this creates a lesser version of ourselves. Now we're not more knowledgeable surgeon like the person took responsibility. We are a lesser one. The fuel to get us from point A, we start the case after a complication, to point B, our next case, is fueled by a costly fuel. It's fueled by self-blame. It's fueled by, this is dangerous. We shouldn't do this. There's something wrong with you. We tear ourselves apart along the way. We become the second victim. Our patient suffers, but now we do too. And we tell ourselves the suffering is necessary to get to point A to point B. But does anyone actually want us to suffer? Do our patients want it? Do our program directors, do our colleagues, does our family, Do the patient's family, do we want that for ourselves? The choice of responsibility and blame is up to us. And what is the long-term cost of this? Let's talk about this concept of a prolonged stress cycle. So we all know the autonomic reactions to a stimulus or a perceived threat, a fight, flight, fee, flee, or fawn. And FOND is interesting. It's basically, I'll tell you whatever you want so you can go away. And this may be us saying, and I say this all the time, I'm fine. You're fine. It's fine. Everything's fine. One of the PA students actually gave me a hat that said that. I'm fine. You're fine. Everything's fine. If your residency or your job was way over the top and created this threat in your mind, your primitive brain, that emotional animalistic part of our brain, expands to where everything feels like it's a threat and you can't get to the smart part, just like we talked about. The stress cycle can be prolonged if it's occurring persistently over years where everything was difficult and challenging. So how do we break the stress cycle? We wanna make sure that we're addressing the emotional and the physical stress cycles. And how we address the emotional cycles, and we've all done this, which is venting. Venting is approaching traumas in a way that we can control. We soothe the emotional side by taking it out and talking to other people, but in ways that we can control. That's venting. We can release the physical pressure by taking a deep breath, letting those neurotransmitter and that part of our brain that's alarming, and we let them wash out. We could try screaming, crying, tense release muscles, exercise, or other physical releases. You can even schedule these to, co- to consciously interrupt the stress cycle. It can be something something simple as deep breathing, meditating, exercising, or positive social interactions. If you schedule these things, then you're proactively, consciously interrupting these stress cycles that are happening all the time. Another book that I've referenced, Burnout, This is a Secret to Breaking the Stress Cycle. The Nagoski sisters wrote this book, and they noted four steps to help us avoid the pit of despair associated with a prolonged stress cycle. The first is planful problem solving. This is engaging your prefrontal cortex ahead of time. The second step is repeatedly recognizing that what you're doing is worth it. It's acknowledging all the things that you've done beforehand. It's tapping into gratitude, but it's being conscious of the things that we have learned about ourselves along the way. And if we repeatedly have steps where we recognize those things, we're telling ourselves it's worth it. The third step, redefining winning. So if we have perfectionist thinking, which we'll talk about, we think we have a perfect operation. All the steps go just as planned, but what if we redefine winning and winning could be I show up, I do the steps, I do the best I can. I'm there for the patient afterwards. How about if we redefine losing? That's the the fourth step. Losing is I make myself the second victim. I'm not there for my patients. That that would, I think we would all agree losing in that scenario. Those are the four steps i found in that book. Perfectionist thinking. The whole aspect of complications is we expect these things to go well, and then they don't go as expected, but there's so many aspects to it. But our f- perfectionist thinking brain doesn't let us think otherwise. It's supposed to be perfect, and that's exactly how it's going to be. The interesting aspect is, does anyone even know what perfect looks like? I mean, what is the perfect operation anyway? It's a little bit difficult to define because is perfect nothing happens at all? Or is perfect nothing really terrible happens? So, the first problem with perfectionist thinking is recognizing that we don't even have a consistent definition for what perfectionist thinking is. So, not only are we likely Aiming towards something that's probably unachievable, we don't even know what that is. So it's hard to define. And the next part about this is that we create this as our identity. Now, it's important to recognize that perfectionist thinking or being a perfectionist, this thought, I'm not calling this a weakness. And it's not, it's a part of who we are, it's a characteristic, it's a shade of who we are. So this weakness is not actually a weakness. And that's why it's so hard to quit. Who says, I don't want to be perfect. Of course we want to be. (laughs) We just have to recognize what that means. So the underlying root of perfectionist thinking is have expectations of how things are supposed to go and feeling like we have some sort of control about how that's supposed to work. I referenced another great book called The Perfectionist Guide to Losing Control by Catherine Schaeffler. It's a really fantastic book. It reinforces a lot of the thoughts that um, we've been saying, which is it's hard to find a tendency when we don't want to give up this. It's based on something we want to hold on to. So let's think about this again. When we think about perfect, it's hard to define. And if we create this as our identity, I am a perfectionist, this is very difficult. We've now tied our identity to being perfect, something that's already hard to define. And Another part of this is perfectionist is living in the future. So for us to be perfectionist, it's saying, I will only be satisfied once I've determined the outcome and that outcome needs to be perfect by some arbitrary definition. So you can already see that these three problems are setting us up for a problem. So when we call ourselves a perfectionist, let's think about this. We've tied ourselves to this outcome. We've tied ourselves to the future. We are never satisfied in this moment because we can only be satisfied when the outcome is achieved. And if this is our identity, then if we don't do that, then we take on this alternate identity, which is incompetent, you know, or the sister imposter syndrome. So we are telling ourselves we are incompetent because we're not perfect. So if we're not perfect, and we want to be a perfectionist. We're telling ourselves that this like it's a fact. We're not trying to find any solution because we are the problem. And therefore, since we did not get the outcome we wanted, it is us. We are the problem. So we deem ourselves incompetent. But what actually is competence? We didn't even, even think to think what that is. We didn't ask where these thoughts may be even coming from. We choose to think that we are incompetent, based on an arbitrary definition. But if you think about the definition of competency, it's essentially discarding everything that we've done so far, our schooling, our test, the cases that we've done, the steps we took beforehand and who we were in that moment. So not recognizing that this is a choice of how we think about ourselves is part of the problem. So if we think perfectionism is the idea of waiting for the outcome to determine what we do, it's discarding the process. So what if we focus then on the process? If we focus on who we are in that moment, instead of being a perfectionist and not making it our identity, why don't we say, I strive to have a perfect outcome. I'm going to do my best to have a perfect outcome, but I'm not going to tie myself to that outcome. I'm going to appreciate who I am to start with. All the things that I've done to ensure that I was competent. I'm going to take the steps of each of these cases to strive for the perfect outcome, but not tying myself to that. I'm going to focus on every step of the process. And this is what I'm going to tie myself to. And striving to be a perfectionist is is reasonable. That is achievable. Doing the best that we can to have a perfect outcome is great. But knowing that we may not get that and that's okay. So let's think about what happens during the complication. So we already talked a little bit about the mindset going into the complication. When we set ourselves up for failure, I've got to be perfect and all the things and all the trauma that we have too, where it's hard to get to the smart part of our brain because we're already a little bit hyped up. Let's talk about during the complication. And I want to talk about the concept of confidence and self-confidence. There's actually a difference. And I think the subtleties of this can help us. When we think of confidence, this comes from knowing we could do something because we have done it. Self confidence comes from our relationship with ourselves. Our ability to be self confidence, be self confident is our ability to exude trust and our abilities, our qualities, our judgments, even if we haven't done the actual act before. We increase our confidence when we do something over and over again. It's muscle memory. It's meeting the expectation of how things are supposed to go it's no problem. I've seen almost every complication there is for this case. So I know I could take myself through it. We can walk into a case like that with confidence, that confidence from, comes from doing something a lot. But then let's go back to how we did that in the first place. I mean, how do we stick a trocar into someone's abdomen? <laughs> I mean, this is like nothing to us right now, right? Right. Like me sticking a trocar in, I'm usually just looking around, talking to people. It doesn't even register on the scale anymore. I can't say that. There's always some aspect of it too, but certainly not nearly as much as it did before. That is confidence. I know I've done it a million times before, but to do something for the first time, we have to have self-confidence to believe in ourselves to do something and know that we're going to be okay. And that's what allows us to do something that would otherwise cause alarm bells, we have to overcome the primitive brain that tells us something bad is going to happen. We have to have faith in ourselves and the process until we do a lot and say, well, I guess when I stuck the trocar in, nothing happened, so maybe I'm okay. So at the root of self-confidence is self-compassion. It is us saying, you have done what you can. Even if something happens, I know I've done my best. I know I tried. I know I used all my skills and training. I had someone watch me as I was doing this i deem myself safe in the act of trying to do this. But self-confidence is where we really have to tap into self-compassion and self-understanding of who we are as people. And if you don't talk kindly to yourself, if you don't have self-compassion, knowing that you're going to support yourself, every case is going to be harder because you have to overcome those alarm bells going off because we know that we are not safe in our feelings. So practically, what does self-confidence in the OR look like? It's telling yourself, I will use my knowledge I have gained over the years to take all the steps to have a safe operation, to be present in what I am thinking in that moment, to ask myself for help or ask for help if needed, and to be okay with who I am as a person, regardless of the outcome. Let's think about what gets in the way of our self-confidence. If all I'm thinking about is what my colleagues will think, what my patients think, then I'm not thinking about what I think. Or maybe I can't trust myself to think something about me. So I'm looking at everyone else to do it for me. I'm always looking for that external validation. I'm looking for someone else to tell me that I'm okay. And that is exhausting and it's not a guarantee. You're now at the mercy of your environment around you. And you may get lucky. And in residency, we often do your first job, you may not. So, when we do this case, it's no wonder that we're nervous and anxious and tired. Not everyone, when they do these cases, is nervous and anxious and tired. So, then we can ask ourselves, What do I think? I want to remind myself of all the things that led me to this moment. We talked a lot about self compassion already. This is the ability to feel a negative emotion and wrap that in with self-love with ourself. Self-compassion is the ability to hold multiple emotions at once. We can have this negative emotion and we can wrap this in with kindness and respect and knowing that we will protect ourselves. So let's talk about the role of others. I wanna focus on just one, just for simplicity's sake and time's sake. So the role of our partners Now, how we were raised and how patients and their family interact with us may influence how we feel about ourselves, but our partners may have the most influence on us because they are the most comparable to who we are in that moment. And our partners could offer us really high quality, amazing thoughts about ourselves and the case and how hard these can be and offering us thoughts that lead to us feeling a little bit better about ourselves. That's what really good partners do. It's not telling you what to do. But offering thoughts about yourself, really boosting yourself up and and offering things that you can latch on to say, yes, that's true. I can do that. A dream partner, when you have a complication finds you and each day offers helpful thoughts, even without you asking, but not all of us have that partner. I coached someone a long time ago about this. She started a job and she had a partner. He was an older partner. And she was very frustrated because she said, I came to this place. He was supposed to be my mentor. And I thought he was going to help me. But this is what happened. She had a case and she called him into the case. He stands at the door, doesn't even scrub in. She expected him to scrub in. And he stands at the door. He says something like that. You're fine. Everything's fine. And that didn't help her though him saying, I'm fine, or you're fine, but not scrubbing in and not offering what she thought was going to be helpful, caused her to think of a lot of thoughts. She started mind reading what he may think. And she was thinking, well, is he not going to help me? I mean, am I bothering him? Maybe I shouldn't bother him again. And so what happened is the next time she had a case, she wanted to call him, but she hesitated. Maybe I won't, maybe I won't call him. And so she cut herself off from having help in that time, in that case. So having a partner that does not resonate with you may actually lead you to have complications, not because it's their fault, but it's because our perception of what that relationship means. It's the thoughts that we offer ourselves based on their actions. I want to talk for a minute about managing negative emotions. So we're in the operating room. Something has happened. And let's think about the negative emotions that come up. So again, it's very helpful to bring yourself back to the facts of it. What is the facts of what happened in the operating room? In that moment, you could pause. We always think that we have to do something, but almost always, we have the ability to stop, take a deep breath, break that stress cycle and say, what are the facts now? Well, I transected the ureter. That that could be a fact. And what do we do in that moment? So when we give ourselves the fact that we're able to strip off all the emotional layers of everything, then you're going to be much more capable of having access to different thoughts, more empowering thoughts. Then you're going to want to think of all the thoughts that come up immediately after that complication. Okay. I transected the ureter. What am what are my thoughts about this? And in that moment, we can pause and think, I'm just going to let myself be present for these thoughts. I'm going to feel this. It's me. I caused something terrible. I'm not sure exactly what's going on. What should I do next? There's no one to help me. I can't ask for any help. They're going to think terribly of me. If we think about all those thoughts that come up and not judge them for coming up, these thoughts come up on their own. They're essentially neurons firing and forming words. But when we're conscious of those thoughts, we could start saying, this is how I'm talking to myself. I'm creating these negative emotions by all the thoughts that I'm offering myself. So we start to understand where these emotions are coming from. And that's the most important aspect. The complication did not cause the negative emotion. The complication is a fact. It's the thoughts about that fact that is creating all these negative emotions within us. Because transecting the ureter may not make people feel the same way we do. And if you think about it, what are some of the ways we could feel? We could feel shame, frustration, frustration. Overwhelm, anxiety, grief, sadness, despair, fear, pain, guilt, shame, frustration, hopelessness, defeated, indignant, all of these things, all from the fact of a transector, a transector ureter. Now we don't want to feel these because they're uncomfortable. So what do we do? A lot of times what we may do with these negative emotions is shove them back into the mental closet. <laughs> we shove it, we shut the door. But what does that do? Whenever we have negative emotions and we shove them in the quarter, and what happens is they magnify. It's like hiding under the bed. It doesn't make us feel more safe. So let's talk about options that we have when we feel a negative emotion in that moment. When we have a negative emotion, we could resist it. I'm not feeling this way. We could deny it. What are you talking about? I'm not feeling shame. I just, you know, I'm certainly not going to talk about it now. We could accept that negative emotion. We could allow it. We can transform it into a different one. We could embrace it as a fact. We can cover it up. Buffering is what we call it. We covered cover it up with food, alcohol, or more work. More work is something that we do all the time. Every time I talk about what we could do with negative emotions, I seem to come up with a longer list of things to do. These are things that we do for emotions because they're uncomfortable. When we have an emotion that's negative, for a fact, like transecting the ureter we're unlikely to come up with something that feels particularly positive. So what are we going to do with this negative emotion? We want to feel responsible for this, but excessive responsibility can move us to self-blame and self-punishment like we talked about. When We think these thoughts that lead to emotions of self-blame and self-punishment, that's what I call dirty pain. So that pain does not lead us to anything. It's crushing. It's destructive. It creates us as a second victim. It doesn't offer anything to anyone. No one wants us to feel this way. No one wants us to crush ourselves in this moment. The more you're able to articulate the emotion that's involved, the more you can find the thought that's coming from that. And this is where you're going to be able to make some headway. When you start realizing, I didn't realize when I transected the ureter that I was blaming myself as a terrible surgeon. You know, Do I really think that I'm a terrible surgeon? This is an unexpected event, and I really wish it didn't happen, and I can feel bad about this. I can change how I think about this in a way that helps us. So let's talk about some examples of how we could do that. Another book that I'd like to recommend is Cassie Urbaniak's A Woman's Guide to Power Unbound. She talks about something called emotional alchemy. I liked how she described this because emotional alchemy is like turning like one metal to another metal. Alchemy sounds like magic. And this is pretty much what this is. Transforming one emotion to another by understanding your thoughts and finding one that's more useful. That's how we alter the source of our emotions, the thoughts behind them. Let me give you an example. When we're feeling shame, the thought is usually, there's something wrong with me. But is there really something wrong with you? Another thought could be, An action I took caused harm. The problem now is the action. We can feel guilt about the action, but we don't feel shame because there's nothing wrong with us. There was something wrong with the action that we took. Now we could look at that action and dissect the action and find a way to do a different action in the future rather than something wrong with me. Now we don't have to overcome this big existential, there's something wrong with me. We can now say, let's look at the facts. Now I have a fact to deal with. And one thought that we can offer us in that moment, we're not at our best and our best looks different every day. And the fact that each day we show up at a different level of okay is helpful. It's reality. It allows us to safely interact with the world. So what if we want to keep the feeling? Let's say I feel, I feel guilt and I want to keep the feel, that feeling of guilt. When I'm in pain, it may make sense to feel it. And again, clean pain is pain that we want to feel. We want to hold on to it and let it process through. And a lot of times we feel this way because it's something that really matters to us. We really want to feel the gravity of it too, because what we do is important. So let's think about how we can then deal with that pain. So now we've decided that we're going to accept it and we're going to hold it what we can do is still look at the facts because sometimes the first step when we have a negative emotion that we're not exactly sure with is to move into action. So we can start asking ourselves, what did I do in the case? What were the steps of the case? How did I respond to this? Did I fight? Did I flee? Did I freeze? Or am I just trying to tell myself it's okay? Am I fawning? How did I show up today? How did I define myself as a surgeon in this moment? What am I making this this fact mean about myself? So, we w- what we want to do is keep ourselves from the shame spiral. We want to keep ourselves in the spiral that doesn't let us look at the facts and doesn't let us find something useful in all this that will let us uh, move to the next step. So, let's think about when it goes off the rails. Let's anticipate what we're going to do if it goes off the rails. We can break the stress cycle. Again, most of these emotions are coming from a thought. That thought's coming from a neurotransmitter. It's 90 seconds. It's coming from the alarm part of our brain. If we're able to take a deep breath, we're already able to start regulating ourselves. We can remind ourselves that in that moment, I always have a choice. I can always ask for help. All I need to do is take the next step. The next action um, to avoid overwhelm is just to take a step. I could take a call. I could ask myself, what is the very next step in this operation? And I could pause for a moment and say, I'm okay right now. Right now, this very second, everything is okay. So after the complication, the most important thing that I want you to to do is to avoid shame. Shame resilience is the most powerful thing that we can do. And the three steps for shame resilience, another book, This is Daring Greatly by Brene Brown. That's where I got the idea of shame resilience from her three steps. I'm going to name these three steps. Then we'll talk about them. First is reach out to a trusted source. This is finding your community, finding someone you can talk to sharing thoughts and getting it out into the open. The second is to talk kindly to yourself. And the third is owning the story so you can own the ending. So, The first step of reaching out to a trusted source, do you right now have a list of people that you can go to, that you can ask, or you can talk to if you have a complication? If you don't, it's important to find one right away. (laughs) There's online communities, there's friends, there's colleagues. And asking yourself, what am I telling myself that's keeping me from reaching out to other people? It's most important to say, to build these ahead of time, is know who am I going to reach out to if I have a problem. The next is talking kindly to yourself. Most of us have no idea how we talk to ourselves, And when I start coaching people and we start talking about the thoughts that they have about themselves, it is absolutely shocking about how unkind we are to ourself. You can try this for yourself. Try writing down the things that you think about yourself and reading it to someone that you love as if it's them. Like, you shouldn't be doing this case. You're terrible. You take too long. These are all the things that we tell ourselves on a daily basis, but unconsciously. Can you imagine if we said that out loud to a friend of ours or a colleague? And once we realize how we're talking to ourselves, it's no wonder why things feel dangerous, things feel unsafe, how we feel unsafe, because that's the relationship that we've developed with ourselves. And it's something that we've Developed over time, there's a part of that that is very motivating. You know, a lot of us maybe were taught that we could motivate ourselves by blaming ourselves or talking unkindly to ourselves. So, first, recognizing not to put yourself down for talking to yourself negatively, because then we put shame on top of shame. (laughs) What you want to do is recognize again, these are just thoughts that can't come up. And now that I know, of course, I'll do something different, I had no idea I was doing this and having a lot of self-compassion and protection for yourself along the way. The third step is owning the story so you can own the ending. This is incredibly important because a lot of us didn't know this step. And this is really what's most helpful because it leads to to the next aspect as well, which is what patients really want. So when we own the story, we don't allow it to fester. We don't allow ourselves to hide because when we feel shame, what we want to do is hide. We don't want other people to see. We don't want them to know what's going on with us. And we think if we don't say it out loud, it's not actually happening, but we know it's true. And shame magnifies in the dark. So when you own the story is the first step towards making sure shame does not take hold. And I have an example I gave last year. It was a lap coli that I do like a million times. And it was a young person, had no risk of bleeding, and came back with um, lightheadedness and a low H&H. And I did not want to go up there. I did not want to talk to the parent or the patient. I felt terrible. It was awful. I didn't want to deal with it. I felt it just there was so many negative feelings about it. But I was able to be present in that moment and say, well, owning the story means I need to go up there and take care of this. This was my patient. This is my operation. This was something that I was responsible for. So I took the responsibility and I owned the story and I went up there and I talked to the patient and I talked to the her mother and they were so kind and gracious and I would never have had access to that information of knowing that they didn't blame me. They didn't blame me so I didn't have to blame me. Um, I took responsibility for it and I heard that other people understood and I was able to be there for that patient and her mother because they both said we're so glad you came here and explained it. We didn't know what happened. And the fact that you're here and explaining this to us makes us feel so much better. And I would not have been able to experience that had I avoided it. And I was able to take back the patients that ironically had the exact same team as I did before. And because I was there and because I was open of saying, I'm not sure what happened. And I was open enough to ask my team about what happened, they said, no, we agree. The case was really straightforward. And you went back and you looked, and there wasn't bleeding at the time. And So although we never exactly figured out what happened, I was able to be there for the patient and for the patient's mother and for our team too, because they took kind of hard too, because everyone was thinking there in the moment, was it something I did? And we forget that it's not just us involved with this. Our patients and our patient's family worry that they did something wrong. Our team worries that they did something wrong. We, of course, worry that we did something wrong. And if we're not sharing all this information, we're not there in support of each other and this is how shame not only magnifies in ourselves, but it magnifies in our team as well. Okay, that's our three steps. Reach out to a trusted source. Talk kindly to yourself. Own the story so you can own the ending. Now, let's talk about what patients want. Our perfectionist brain says patients want a perfect outcome. But is that actually what patients want? When you counsel a patient after a complication, I've heard this a few times where the patient said, you said this might happen. So our patients understand much more than we do. When we do the counseling, they've heard what we said. They're there in that clinic and they're internalizing it. They maybe have researched ahead of time. They hear what we say, they may research it afterwards too. So they already have some idea of what may happen, but what they don't know is what happens in the operating room. Or in the clinic, they may not know some of the details involved, like labs or important results. So we forget that the patients are there in the dark. They don't know what happened. They come in and they're awake. And when they're asleep, something happened and something unexpected happened. So our patients just want to know what happened to them. I had a patient a long time ago who came to me for a hernia repair. And it had been two years. And she said, I have been in distress these two years because something happened to my body and no one was there to explain it everyone was so afraid of her suing that they wouldn't tell her what happened and she's like i just i'm not interested in suing i just want to know what happened to me so for us to be there for the patients and to communicate with them and tell them what happened that is one of the most important things that we can do this complication is not about us it's about what happened to them and we can be there for them that's how we can be there for them is telling them what happened And next, they want to know that we care. They want to know we learned something. They want to know that we're going to be there for them, that we're going to follow them through, that they don't have to worry about the next steps because even though this was unexpected, that we're going to be there for them. So the last part, and this is kind of a hard part, what if there is room to improve? So if we've had a complication... We don't want to just say it happens to everybody, you're fine. Because until we decide that we are fine, then we're never going to believe it. And what happens when we start measuring our outcomes? We're going to start deciding what actually is is going on. But if we're going to measure our outcomes, we need to measure all of the things. We want to make sure that we're paying attention to all the aspects. How many times do I do this case? Is this complication expected? how have I tracked all of this? Because otherwise we just get this vague sense of like everything, everything that I do like falls apart. Everything is wrong. But if we say I do 70 lap coles a year and I've been here for six years and I've had one take back for bleeding. When I look at that number, I can be reassured that one complication was fairly devastating. But when you look at the outcomes of this thing, well, this is reasonable within what has been documented. So If we find that maybe we are an outlier, then having a lot of compassion for ourselves too, we're like, well, it's because I'm looking. I'm ready to look. I'm ready to get better. It's acknowledging that although I strive to be a perfectionist, I want a perfect outcome. I realize that may not be possible. And the only way to get closer to a more perfect outcome is for me to understand where I'm at. And that involves the ability to look at what I'm doing and learn from my mistakes, because if I learn from my mistakes, that is the best way for me to be closer to a more perfect outcome. By embracing that discomfort, we're actually going to be relieving the discomfort of the worry about whether we're perfect or not. So you really do have to understand the concepts of self-compassion and understanding the process before you undergo this concept of looking at outcomes but it's only with looking at outcomes that we are going to be able to give ourselves the reassurance from ourself. So we want to make sure that we are not lying to ourselves, and we want to make sure that we are supporting ourselves. and regardless of what this is. So the only way to shine light on this shame and worry that we have is to shine or the, is to shine light on it. And that's what we're going to do is to be able to look at these outcomes. So finding a way for us to say, I'm ready. I'm gonna take a look and and make sure that I'm doing okay. But we also want to be fair too. Another outcome we want to measure is to look at all the things that we're actually doing. We want to show ourselves all the schooling that we did, all the tests, all the patients we evaluated, the clinics that we went to, the articles we've read, the maintenance of certification, the CMEs, the oral boards, our cases. Make sure that we are giving ourselves the full picture of who we are as a surgeon. That's the most important aspect of this, is for us to work on building that relationship with ourself, to make sure that we are the ones reassuring ourselves. It's very important that we understand what other people's feedback are about us. But in the end, we want to be able to, to be the one that holds that information and determines how we feel about ourselves. It is the best way to make sure that we are safe in this really amazing job that we have that is not easy and there's a reason why not everyone can do it. Okay, this was mostly for me honestly, I wanted to make sure that I pulled out all these lessons that I've that I learned along with you in this group coaching that I had this last three months and really pausing to make sure that I'm gelling these, and offering them in ways. Because what I really want to do is to make sure that you all know this information as well. For more information on the Boss Business of Surgery series, go to bosssurgery.com.